Hello and welcome to the Seattle Magazine podcast. I'm Jonathan Sposato, the owner and publisher of Seattle Magazine. Daniel James Brown is the author of Facing the Mountain, a true story of Japanese-American heroes in World War II, The Indifferent Stars Above, Under a Flaming Sky, which was a finalist for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award, and of course, The Boys in a Boat, a New York Times best-selling book that was awarded the American Literature Association's Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. He has taught writing at San Jose State University and Stanford University. He lives outside Seattle. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I understand that you just saw an advanced screening of the Boys in a Boat movie. What were your thoughts? Yeah, so I have to be a little circumspect at this point about what I what I talk about in terms of the details. But yes, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, invited to a private screening with uh, George Clooney, who directed the film, and his wife and a few other folks. So, um, so we went into the screening room down in Burbank, and uh, and we saw the full film. It's in the can. It's done. It's um, completely edited and and ready to go. Um, and um, and I liked it. I liked what I saw a lot. And I'll, I'll have a lot more to say about that as we get closer to the release. Yeah, that's right. So so can I just ask one more thing, which is like just in general, what is it like to see something that you've written turn into a big screen movie? What's that like? <laughs> it was pretty exciting. Um, you know, I'm, I think my wife was maybe more nervous than I was. We were both nervous sitting there waiting for the, for the movie to start. I have to say... Uh, George Clooney came over and sat down with us and talked to us for a while before we saw it, and that sort of sprinkled some stardust in our in our eyes um, and probably predisposed us a little to like what we were about to see. But in fact, um, I genuinely liked liked what I saw a great deal. You know, it, it's a really interesting thing seeing a four hundred page book um, adapted to two hours of running time. And um, inevitably, there are some decisions that have to be made about what goes in and what doesn't go in. But that's uh, that's the level on which I'm I'm very happy. You know, I think I think they got at the spirit of the um, of the book quite well. That's great. And I'm actually joined by my two esteemed colleagues here at Seattle Magazine, Executive Editor in Chief Rob Smith, and also our Chief of Opportunity Linda Lowry. Thank you for being here, everyone. Oh, of course. Looking forward to it, Jonathan. So why don't we get kicked off? And, and, and actually, for more uh, really great conversation on Boys in a Boat, stay tuned for part two of this podcast. So let's jump into thoughts about Seattle. Daniel, you are familiar with Seattle. You've lived in the Bay Area. Generally, what are your own impressions of Seattle? What is your own personal history or connection to the Emerald City? And how would you describe Seattle to a friend? You know, I came up, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, but I came up to Seattle in uh, 1988 to work for Microsoft, actually. And uh, my wife and I both fell in love with the city and the area immediately, which surprised me because I grew up uh, attached to my sort of home homeland, which is the Bay Area. But it, it was a wonderful place for us to raise small children, for one thing. Um, we had uh, one newly arrived baby when we got here, and we had another baby shortly after that. So, and they are now adults in their 30s. So they grew up entirely in the Northwest, in, in and around Seattle. And, you know, it, I just think that um, I, I feel a little bit splits 
these days because I do have this deep loyalty to the Bay Area where I grew up and my father grew up. But I think at this point, my loyalty to the Seattle area is is equal to that. So uh, it's just it's just a terrific town, terrific area. I, you know, in the process of writing, um, particularly the boys in the boat, I wound up learning a lot about Seattle history, particularly Seattle in the 1930s. And that was fascinating to me. I like when I walk around any city, I like to know what has come before me. And so the process of writing The Boys in the Boat really made me feel bonded to this to the Seattle area. And certainly the response to that book also has, uh, has reinforced that. Wonderful. Uh, my question to you is, can you share a fun fact about yourself that you have not shared with your audience? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think some people know this because I think it was in my bio for a while. But I was a beekeeper as a kid, <laughs> and I've been a beekeeper on and off ever since. And it's kind of a quirky thing to do. But I fell in love with, um, with the world of bees and with beekeeping when I was oh, eight or nine years old and got my first hive, I think, when I was 12. And so um, it's been this sort of through line in my life. Wherever I've been, until very recently, I've always had some beehives. The very recently part is that a couple of years ago, a bear got into our yard and oh, no. <laughs> oh. took, out the, took out the beehives. And oh, I, no. I haven't had the heart uh, to start a new hive because the bears have been around more and more. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm allergic to bees, and that sounds horrifying. <laughs> So, Daniel, I know you taught writing at San Jose State University in Stanford. Then you became a technical writer and editor. How does one go from there to becoming an author? Good question. I mean, it was a surprise to me. I uh, I got to the point when I was working at Microsoft. You know, Microsoft was a fascinating place to work. I enjoyed it a lot. But by about 2000, I had come to the point where I wasn't really that interested in what I was doing. It had never been a particular passion of mine. I had always wanted to be a writer since I was a small child. And so while I was still at Microsoft, I sat down and I just started writing a book. It was a book about this forest fire in Minnesota that, uh, in which my great-grandfather died and my grandfather escaped on a burning train, and it was all very <laughs> dramatic. So I went back to Minnesota, and I did some research there. And, and then I came back to Redmond, and I sat down, and I just wrote a book about it. And I, I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't, at that point, know that with a nonfiction book, you generally sell the book based on a proposal. You don't actually write the whole book first. I didn't know that, so I wrote the whole book, and it took me about a year and a half. And then I spent another year and a half or so trying to find an agent, trying to find some way to get it published. Finally, it got published quite obscurely. But, you know, that was sort of a foot in the door. It, it taught me that I could be a writer, that I could actually write an entire book. And then Barnes & Noble actually got interested in that book. They picked it up, and they, they put it on their Discover Great New Writers shelf, and front of one of the stores, or yes, all the stores. And that caught the attention of the bigger publisher. And so my, my writing career sort of took off from that point. So since then, you have written a book about the Donner Party. You've written uh, The Boys in the Boat, Facing, Facing the Mountain. How do you choose what you want to write about? All my books have come through some kind of personal connection. You know, that, that book about the fire in Minnesota, that was literally my my mother's father that had escaped on the burning train, and she had kept a bunch of memorabilia from that. The Donner Party thing was, of course, something that had been written about a great deal, 
But I actually had a firsthand connection with that. I had a uh, a great uncle who uh, was, as a very young boy, participated in the first rescue expedition up into the Sierra Nevada that reached the Donner Party. And he had kept a diary. And when I was a small boy, I remember my uncle getting me handle that diary and page through it. So I always felt sort of a personal connection with that with that piece of history. It was real to me because I had uh, I'd actually held this this diary. And then The Boys in the Boat was the next book, and that was literally because my neighbor, Judy Rance-Willman, her father was Joe Rance, and so I started talking to her and her dad and took off from there. In part one of our podcast, we will be discussing in depth the book Facing the Mountain. Facing the Mountain is an unforgettable chronicle of wartime America and the battlefields of Europe. Based on Daniel's extensive interviews with the families of the protagonists, as well as deep archival research, it portrays the kaleidoscopic journey of four Japanese-American families and their sons, who volunteered for 442nd Regimental Combat Team and were deployed to France, Germany, and Italy. Woven throughout is the chronicle of a brave young man, one of a cadre of patriotic resistors who stood up against their government in defense of their own rights. Whether fighting on battlefields or in courtrooms, these were Americans under unprecedented strain, doing what Americans do best, striving, resisting, pushing back, rising up, standing on principle, laying down their lives, and enduring. How did you find the four stories in Facing the Mountain? That must have been a treasure trove of choices you could have had. Yeah, so again, it was kind of a happenstance and a personal connection. In 2015, I attended, I was uh, uh, honored uh, at the, uh, what they called the Mayor's Arts Award. I was there to receive recognition for the boys in the boat, but I shared the stage with a gentleman named Tom Ikeda. And Tom was there because of his work with the Densho Project. He spent over 25 years collecting the oral histories of Japanese Americans who lived through the World War II experience and videotaping these firsthand accounts, oh, these oral histories. And so I was sitting on their stage listening to Tom talk about what he did at Densho, and I, I just thought it was really interesting. I'm always looking for stories. So he and I chatted, and then I went home that night, and I got online, I got on the Densho website where he has made all this material available to anybody that wants to see it. And I started to watch and listen to these firsthand accounts of all these folks that have lived through this experience. And there were so many wonderful stories that I was just sort of mesmerized right from the beginning. And so I I went back and started talking to Tom, and he and I went back and forth for about a year about various ways to approach a book centered on the Japanese-American experience during during World War II. And if I can sort of jump in, as an Asian American, I've often felt that growing up that this was one of the most untold, under-visible stories of American history. I I had the honor of interviewing George Takei about a year ago. Um, He's, of course, written about his own internment experiences via the form of a graphic novel, and he speaks eloquently and beautifully about about how that changed his family in some very tragic ways. And um, this is something that that again, as an Asian American, I'm so glad that that these these stories are made more and more visible. I mean, the 
there's so much there that um, is highly resonant uh, with what's going on today and what has happened to our country and the division. And so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I will say that I really hesitate, even I was fascinated by these stories and Tom was extremely encouraging. I still hesitated to write a book about this because I'm not Asian American, I'm not Japanese American. And so it was really only with quite a bit of prodding from Tom, but really when I started talking to the family members of the four individuals that I wound up focusing on. And the family members were very encouraging. They were very welcoming. They, you know, they shared all their their materials with me. And so I wound up in a place where I felt like I really, I really needed to write the book. As you say, part of the reason I approached it was that having written The Boys in the Boat, I had a big platform for the first time as a writer. I really felt listening to these stories that I could use my platform to get them out in front of a, a wider audience. And so ultimately, that's that's why I wound up uh, taking it on. Yeah, you know, I would say that there is an interesting thing that as you are aware of where, uh, I don't know if the correct term is gatekeeping, but there is a lot of potential backlash that one can face if you're not from the particular group that you're writing about. Sure. Um, you know, uh, one of my other projects is Joysauce, joysauce.com, which is an all Asian American focused media platform with articles, podcasts, reality TV shows, uh, scripted narratives. And early, early on, one of the things that that people took issue with was that my wife, who was non-Asian, was involved in a project. Mm -hmm. And it was very frustrating. It's like, hey, we need allies. Right. We need other people to also lean in and tell our stories. It, 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 we can't just rely on ourselves. Right. Obviously, we've got to self-activate as well. But, but it's actually okay if others also want to join. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in allyship in general, and certainly that's the way I was I was thinking of it. I mean, I also, I guess, I would point out. I mean, people are, you know, if they if they don't want to read a book written by a white guy about this experience, I understand that. But one of the things that was in my mind was, if you look at the sources for this book, they are all almost all the firsthand accounts of people that live the experience. I tried very hard never to substitute my voice for the voices of the people that were telling the original stories. And so I saw my job in writing this book as simply weaving those stories together in a way that would be compelling. And then, as I say, putting on the, on the platform that, uh, that I had. So that's how I went at it. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the fact that you mentioned that you have a platform now after writing Boys in the Boat. And I also loved that you brought in Tom Ikeda, who wrote your preface to Facing the Mountain. Well, I would just say that, you know, even as I was talking to Tom and I was looking at there are hundreds and hundreds of people whose lives are chronicled on, on the web, Densha website, I still had this problem of like, this is way too much stuff. I didn't really want to write a comprehensive history of the Japanese-American experience of World War II. That's not what I do. I, I, I write personal stories. I try to focus on real individuals and what kind of light their lives shed on a particular slice of history. So I, I wanted it to be personal. So I, I knew I needed to narrow the focus down. And that was the biggest challenge um, because, as I say, there was so much good material. I wound up really interested in sort of a single question that provided the focus, and that was right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, young Nisei men, Japanese-American men of draft age in particular, faced a particular dilemma. Everybody who was Japanese-American suddenly faced all kinds of problems. But young men of draft age had a particular dilemma, and that was that 
here these guys are. They're, they're going to high school or college or working on the farm or whatever. And a few days after Pearl Harbor, all their high school friends and their dorm mates and the, the people they know at work, all the other young men are going down to the enlistment offices and signing up uh, for the Army. When they go down, they are told universally that they can't enlist, that they are something called an enemy alien, even though they are, in fact, American citizens. And at the same time, as the months go on, they and their families are being rounded up and incarcerated in these camps. So what do you do if you're a young man in that situation? You may want to serve your country. You may be outraged by what's happened, but you may all very well also be outraged at what's happening to you and to your family. And so I think there's an interesting uh, nexus there, interesting point of departure for something to explore as the sort of central dilemma in the book. And that's, uh, so I wound up focusing on four young men of, of draft age. And Daniel, how did you choose those four young men? What persuaded you that that was going to be the best narrative for your story? First of all, they were all four of them had uh, good, well-documented um, stories. In other words, they had done multiple interviews, both with Densho and or other places. In in all those cases, the families uh, were very amenable to me talking to them and to telling their their sons or their fathers or their grandfathers' uh, story. So that was all very, very important. But then beyond that, I wanted um, I wanted some geographical diversity. The experience of young men in Hawaii was very different from young men uh, on the mainland. The young men in Hawaii were not being rounded up and put in camps. Uh, their fathers, in many cases, were, but they they weren't subject to wholesale incarceration. So I wanted I wanted to show the difference uh, between the experience of those who lived in Hawaii and those who lived in the mainland. I wanted some diversity on the mainland, so I wanted some people from the Northwest, somebody from California. And so, you know, I was just trying to, to get all those uh, bases covered. And I didn't get all the bases covered. I mean, there are aspects of the Japanese-American experience during the war that I don't really get into. Um, for one thing, Quite a few of these young men wound up in the military intelligence service, the MIS, acting as translators and listening in on Japanese uh, transmissions or interrogating prisoners. And there's a whole interesting set of stories around that experience, too. But I focused more narrowly on young men who served in the U.S. Army and specifically in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was this all-Japanese-American unit that fought in, in Europe. How different was the experience as of a Japanese-American in Hawaii as opposed to the mainland? Yeah, there's quite a bit. When these two groups came together at basic training at Camp Shelby in Mississippi, they really did not get along because their experiences had been so different. You know, kids that grew up in, in Hawaii, they grew up, first of all, in a sort of more multiracial context than the mainland kids had. They spoke almost universally. They spoke Pigeon, Hawaiian pidgin uh, English, um, and that was a language that bonded them together. Many of them either worked themselves or certainly their parents had worked on in the cane fields under really brutal conditions. Uh, and so that was one set of experiences. It was very different than, say, a kid from Spokane or a kid who was a student at UCLA uh, who might have a much more typical, you know, American 
middle class, working class, middle class, whatever kind of kind of experience. They didn't speak that kind of language. They didn't have the same set of expectations about where their lives would go. And so, as I say, it was it was a distinct enough difference that it caused a lot of friction when these two groups met in in basic training. How'd you come up with a title for the book? <laughs> uh, I think my wife came up with the title. I am absolutely terrible with titles. Um, it sort of works on a couple levels. Um, one is just sort of this notion that metaphorically. Japanese Americans and these Japanese American young men that I'm writing about immediately after Pearl Harbor just sort of fa- suddenly this mountain of troubles uh, rose in their path and they had to find a way through it or around it or over it. But it's also um, just a geographic or topographical fact that when the 442nd was fighting in Italy and then again in the Vosges Forest uh, on the French-German border, they were always fighting their way uphill. The Germans always had the high ground. Time after time, these guys had to you know, fight their way up some hill in Tuscany or some mountain in the Vosges Forest or back in Italy again on the Gothic Line. They were always fighting their way uphill, up to the side of some mountain. So it worked on that level also. Is there anything else that you like to say regarding the 4042nd Regiment that wasn't shared in the book? Boy, I tried to get as much into the book as I could. Um, the only thing I, would, I think I'd say along those lines is it's those are just three experiences, and there were several thousand people in the 442nd, and so there were a lot of experiences that I didn't document. The, the medics, for instance, the, some of the there were a lot of great stories that I found on the Densho archives that I wasn't able to to fold in just because it would have been too many characters. Some of the medics had incredible stories. These guys weren't even armed oftentimes going out beyond the front line to try to bring back in wounded Nisei soldiers and coming under uh, fire while doing so. Uh, The chaplains were really interesting, the role that they played. So there, you know, there are a lot more stories and there's a lot more breadth and depth to the story than you can tell with just um, three or four characters. But I did try to find people whose experiences were representative. Going into this, what was your knowledge about how Japanese Americans were treated at that time? You know, not not probably a lot more than the other any other white guy my age of my generation, except that um, maybe a little more because I I grew up in California and my my father worked in the flower business in the flower market in San Francisco, and then I later worked for his company. And uh, we sold supplies to uh, florists and to growers, nurserymen. And I would say probably a third, 35, 40% of our customers were Japanese-American florists or growers. I have this very distinct memory. My father was a very gentle, soft-spoken man. He he very seldom got angry, visibly angry. But I, I have a very specific recollection when I was quite young of him talking about what had happened to his customers during the war and how they had come back after, come back from the camps after the war. They had found their greenhouses shattered or the land they'd been growing on taken away from them and how they had had to start all over with their businesses and how many of them were unable to start those businesses again. It was something that really affected my father to the point I could see it in him, and and so that made a big impression on me. And in the back of my mind, I think that's always really 
you know, really bothered me uh, just because it was so unusual. The terminology around this has changed considerably since World War II, and you use more modern terminology in the book. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, first of all, let me just say that generally, as far as the, you know, sending people off to the camps, the government deliberately designed a lot of very euphemistic uh, language to surround uh, the experience of forcing people out of their homes and locking them up behind barbed wire. They called that an evacuation. These were basically concentration camps. They called them relocation centers. There's a whole bunch of language that the government used to try to soften what was happening. And, and I have a little note up front in the beginning of the book about that. And then I would also come back to that word I just used, which was concentration camp. You know, I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm conflating these Japanese-American camps with something like Auschwitz or, or Dachau. Those were slave labor camps and or death camps, and there was nothing else like them in modern history. But that said, these were, in fact, concentration camps. They were designed to concentrate a particular population based on their ethnicity, to remove them from the general population, to concentrate them in a single place or single places behind barbed wire for the duration of the war. It's a term, actually, that Franklin Roosevelt used before the war, talking about the hypothetical need to have camps like this. Um, which became not a hypothetical. So again, I, I wouldn't want people to be offended by the use of that term, but I think it's important to to use it honestly and, and correctly. What was your biggest surprise in writing the book or the whole process of researching and everything? There's always, you know, just one surprise after another in a, in a book like this. And, you know, it may, it may sound trite. I don't have any combat experience myself. And so writing battle scenes was something I worried a lot about. And I talked to a lot of people who have been in those, including the Nisei veterans that I was writing about. I was surprised by the extraordinary courage that these young men demonstrated in circumstances that I couldn't even conceive surviving. I mean, there were a lot of circumstances where I think I would have withered up and blown away long before I got to to the juncture that they not only survived, but actually prevailed in. So it's more than one single thing. It's just this over and over again, seeing the uh, the absolute courage of these, uh, that the young men in, in battle displayed. My next question is, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> what are your feelings on land reparations post-internment. Because, for example, in Bellevue, there was a law that no Asian Americans could live in their city up until the 80s. I, th I believe, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I believe the land on which the Bell Square Mall is built was land that was uh, owned by Japanese, faulted, farmed by Japanese American farmers for decades. I, I think some form of reparations is due. Um, there were, you know, there there was payments to those people who were actually interned. There were payments of twenty thousand dollars made during, I believe, it was the Reagan administration. But that twenty thousand dollars didn't, of course, begin to, you know, replace the real cost of having lost businesses like my father's customers and friends did. So um, I'm I'm no expert on it, but I, I personally I think there's reparations that could be made. You know, this is a question, Daniel, that I recently asked of the um, great American playwright, Asian-American playwright, David Henry Huang. 
Uh, and I think I asked um, George Takei this similar question. And I'll ask you this question uh, because you are now a subject matter expert. Do you think things are better today for Asian Americans or worse? Wow. I so much want to say better. And, you know, I probably would have said better a few years ago. Um, but it seems to me that we're backsliding. And maybe that's maybe we weren't ever better than, and the backsliding was just in my perception. But as an outsider, as a non Asian uh, American, it, it does feel to me that in the last, you know, six, seven years, whatever, um, there's been a big backward movement in terms of prejudice, discrimination against uh, Asian Americans from sort of the general American population. I think that's extremely unfortunate. And, I, you know, that's probably one of my motives for writing this book, too, was that in addition to uh, how personally attached I became to the people I was writing about, I became really invested in the Japanese American community in particular and uh, started to seeing the world more through their eyes than certainly I had uh, before the experience of writing the book. So, so yeah, unfortunately, I, I, I don't think we're moving in the right direction. I personally can't decide either. So I appreciate your <laughs> candid, candid answer there. And But in all of this, may we continue to be inspired by the bravery of the uh, 442nd and, and kind of channel the spirit of Go For Broke yeah. and continue to be inspired by your allyship, Daniel, and the work that you do in amplifying uh, these uh, various voices. I find this whole story of the 442nd one of the most under-focused stories uh, in American history. And in many ways, I would argue it's one of the most American of stories, right? You have an outgroup that's been marginalized who are constantly being told that they're not American, uh, that they're uh, alien citizens. How much more can you possibly prove your patriotism than to die for the flag? And and so I am uh, just shocked that there is not already a, a movie uh, being made of this, or or is there? Well, we shall see. Um, I've been talking to a director named Destin Daniel Creighton, and uh, Destin is, um, uh, we've actually got a preliminary deal with Disney to um, do not a, a feature film, but to do a series. Um, wow. So it would probably be five to eight uh, episodes, hour-long episodes. Um, it's a big enough story that we feel that it should be... Um, it, it, it's too much to try to cram into a two-hour running time movie. So we think that the series uh, format will work better. So Disney actually has a um, a group within Disney Films that is called Onyx, and it's a label, if you will, that's dedicated to telling the stories of people of color. And so Destin uh, is um, is very much involved with them. And so he's set up to direct this series, and we have a showrunner, and we were about to um, to write the pilot and and kick that whole process off when the writers' uh, strike started here a couple weeks ago. So, <laughs> so it's in limbo for now. But um, but I'm very committed to it. Destin's very committed to it. Uh, the folks at Onyx seem very committed to it. So I'm optimistic that uh, that once the writers are um, appropriately uh, compensated, that we can move forward. Well, Daniel, we are incredibly excited to see this come to fruition. So will you, will you promise to talk to us when, when that time comes? Sure, I'd be glad to. Okay, great. And that concludes part one of our conversation with best-selling author Daniel James Brown. 
Stay tuned for part two, where we will be discussing arguably his most famous book and one that originates right here in Seattle, Boys in a Boat. Thank you for listening to the Seattle Magazine podcast. You can always find us on seattlemag.com. Look for new episodes approximately every two weeks on our website. A special thank you to the entire Seattle Magazine staff and to podcast producer Nick Patry. Contact Lisa Lee at lisa at seattlemag.com for partnership opportunities. Until next time, let's keep celebrating Seattle.